Thanks for listening to the Georgetown Christian Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 9 and 1030 and learn more at georgetownchristian.org. We're in a new series called Monsters. And monsters are things that you can't see, but you believe really big things about that turn out to be not true. So here's a question I want you to hold in your mind. Maybe write in the bulletin or the, uh, maybe even the margin of your Bible. You might want to type it in your phone. And the question I have for you to, to hold in your mind, to consider not only as I preach, not only um, today and this morning together as a church, but then through the rest of the week. And there's, there's always the opportunity for you to tell me if something comes to mind. And I, I need your feedback on this to make this series something that counts for more than the time we're just together on a Sunday because, well, it's Sunday and my family takes me and makes me. It's just another Sunday and my neighbors are going to think it's weird because they're Christians, I'm Christian. It'd be weird if I was home. This is more than a time that you're supposed to punch a spiritual time clock. This is the gathering of the body of Christ. This is the church gathered within a building for the purpose of our encouragement to continue living lives that glorify God. So I need to know that this sermon series is answering the questions that I think you have. Uh, I think Rick Rowe and Doug Melton and Matthew Townsend who have helped to put this whole thing together, but I don't wanna call it done because I think that you have input that we still need. So here's the question for you to consider. What is a question about? A a misconception of or a barrier to evangelism? And it's okay if half of those words are fuzzy to you, especially that last one. That's why we have the series. But what is a question about? A misconception of or a barrier to evangelism. Write that down, and um, at the end of church today, this is an extra short sermon. I promise you, the time is 11. You can check it on your watches. 11.01, I've been speaking for two minutes. I think it's about 20 minutes. It was first service, and it's purposefully short because I want to invite you, and even if you're not necessarily a member, if you're a person who's pursuing a relationship with Jesus, even mildly curious about Jesus, you will have input that helps to form the series, and we need it. And so I would ask you for your time after. I'm ending early for that purpose. That does not mean you have to stay. I don't control your time. But I do, as the pastor, really want to make sure that this body is is formed in maturity, that all of the ligaments and parts and muscles and pieces and tendons are all working the way that they need to work, that we can be growing in maturity because Paul says that's up into the head who is Christ. So we can get successfully connected, united into the head of Christ who really actually leads us. And right now we have a blessing of unity amongst this group of people that churches don't get to have. It's a great blessing. So I ask you to consider that question because I believe that it is imperative that for our church, his body, to reach this community with the good news that we have to talk about this monster 
under our bed in the closet called evangelism. There are two groups of people who are terrified of the word or the act of evangelism. The first group is non-Christians. The second group is Christians. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so scary. And maybe for you, it's because of a story like this. This is, this is a pastor who published a, in a national magazine called the Christian Standard. He published these words. Pastor Jerry Harris recalls, Years ago, a church member phoned me and asked me to go to a hospital call for their relative. They were dying in the hospital. This relative had a terminal brain tumor and no relationship with Jesus. I had not been invited by the immediately family, so I figured this is going to be awkward. Is that one of those things that we're afraid about evangelism? It's going to become awkward. Listen to this. I stepped into the hospital room with complete strangers and introduced myself. Hi, I'm Pastor Jerry Harris. I wasn't greeted at all. Not warmly. I wasn't greeted. The person in the bed was Benny Robertson, and he appeared to be close to death. He was like half laying, half sitting, and Benny was making this motion as though he was feeding himself, but there was not a tray table, there was not a tray, there was not a plate, there wasn't a fork, and Benny just kept going. His family finally speaks and says, uh, don't mind Benny, he's on a super high dose of morphine because he's dying. So I pulled my chair up next to his bed, and I asked him if I could share a few words about Jesus Christ with him. And in a moment of lucidity, he replies, I'm going to go where I'm going to go. Is that why some of us are afraid of evangelism? <laughs> that's, that's not how you want it to go. <laughs> I, I asked if I could just pray with him. Benny, can, can I just can I pray with you? Get it over with. I offered a short prayer. I left the room. I headed to my car, and I thought, this is such a failure. This was a disaster. And maybe that's how you picture evangelism going. Maybe it has actually gone that way for you. Or maybe Satan's convinced us all that that is necessarily how every time it goes. Pastor Harris was really honest. He says, I was angry. I was angry at the rejection. I was angry that the family didn't want me there, and I was angry that the, congregation, the congregant wanted me there, and I was angry that Benny didn't seem to care that he was going to go where he was going to go. I think that's probably a good description of what some of us think about evangelism. And I think that's one of the monsters we've got to pull the mask off to reveal the truth. You are probably familiar with the Scooby-Doo series. It was a cartoon, it was a comic, it was a movie, a lot of times over. And you probably know all the characters, but in case you don't, Scooby is a dog. And Scooby tries to talk. He says a lot of things like rot row and 
Rorge. It's all Scooby says. Scooby generally just gets super terrified about not a whole lot and also super terrified about the big scary monsters. And his owner, Shaggy, is like equally as scarable, but Shaggy is in it for the snacks. How many of you guys have had Scooby snacks? <laughs> I mean, they sell snacks based on this cartoon. And Shaggy is known for getting these, these comically large Subway sandwiches. And because it's a cartoon, he just like opens his mouth and puts the whole thing in. And Scooby does the same. And Fred is like this logistician. He's like this master mystery solver. And Velma is extra witty. And Daphne is, uh, yeah, she's a little ditzy. Okay, you guys are familiar. So, so you know that then generally in every, every single one of the Scooby-Doo shows that you're going to have these common themes. You're going to have a big scary monster who's terrorizing some group of people, and then you're going to have those meddling kids, the Scooby-Doo gang. They're going to come in the Scooby bus or the mystery machine, and they're going to come, and they're going to get scared, and they're going to get clues, and they're probably going to get snacks if you're Scooby or Shaggy, and they're going to do some things that, that help them find the truth, which leads to eventually, at the very end of the episode, they're usually going to be a moment where someone like Fred, Velma, uh, Daphne, maybe Shaggy, they pull the mask off the monster and the truth is revealed. Oh, it was just Mr. Jenkins all along. But this whole episode, you see everybody walk around in total fear. They're terrified until we pull the mask off. So in the month of October, we, we want to redeem the idea that we're going to dress up like demons. We want to confront some of the lies of the enemy. We want to shine the light under the bed because how many of you, like me, thought that there was definitely a monster under my bed after the lights are out and the house gets quiet and you can hear every noise, you are confident that you can hear a monster breathe. And you know they're under there. And for me, it was in my closet because under my bed was too dirty. Uh, but there was one in my closet. I just know they're in there. And so eventually you get scared enough. You're like, Mom, Dad, come save me. I know I'm going to die. And they come in. And what do they do? They come in the room. They open the door. They come in the room. And they turn on the light. And then you can see in the closet. And you can get out and look with them under the bed. And now the monster's not so scary. We've got to pull the mask off the monsters of evangelism, be it a barrier to evangelism, be it a misconception about evangelism, be it today we'll talk about a couple of lies that the enemy feeds us about evangelism. I think enemy lie number one is you don't know what evangelism is. Enemy lie number one is and you may have felt that when we had that question on the screen. What's a common misconception, misunderstanding, hurdle that prevents us from successfully evangelizing? You might have first thought, I don't know what evangelism is. I really, I don't know what evangelism means. So let's dispel an enemy lie. We're doing two enemy lies today. Enemy lie number one is you don't know what evangelism is. And the truth is, Evangelism is really simple. Evangelism is one person telling another person about Jesus. So just like kindergarten, let's say that together. Evangelism is one person telling another person about Jesus. 
But Satan's going to have us programmed to repeat to ourselves that you don't know what evangelism is. He's going to get you on autopilot to where you wake up or you encounter an unbeliever and you immediately hit play on that soundtrack that he's trained you to play. That soundtrack, that lie that is, I don't know what evangelism is. And the truth is we can know evangelism is one person telling another person about Jesus. I just, I want to go through three examples in scripture three different kinds of people who have the good news shared with them. And the first one of the three is a person being told about Jesus, and it's a person who's actually looking for Jesus. The story is in the Gospel of John. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples, and when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God! Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard John's words and followed Jesus. Now, the first thing he did was to find his brother, Simon. See, Andrew was looking for Jesus. Presumably, Simon was too, because he followed for a while. He said to him, we have found the Christ. And Andrew took Simon to Jesus. That's the day Jesus names him Peter. Evangelism is one person telling another person about Jesus. And one of those kinds of people is a person who's looking for Jesus. A second kind of person is a person who's not looking for Jesus. You, you could probably remember a story about a woman at a well met there by Jesus. And you might remember some little fact about this. And maybe it's not coming to mind immediately, but I'll remind you. There was a time of day that people went to the well, and it was typically women, because it was household chore. And so this woman found herself at the well, not by accident, at noon. Because nobody else would be at the well at this time of day, because she didn't want to be confronted with the painful reality in which she lived, and that is that she's on her fifth husband, and she's not sure that that's going as well as she wants it to go. So she avoids 6 a.m. when most of the women are there, or 6 p.m. when they may be going to fill their jugs again. And she goes in the heat of the day. And she encounters Jesus there. And she wasn't looking for Jesus. She was looking for water. But he says, I tell you the truth. I give you living water. And when you drink this water, you'll never thirst again. He shares with her that he is the Messiah. He reveals to a broken woman who's not looking for the good news about Jesus that he's the Messiah. Evangelism is one person telling another person about Jesus. And sometimes we tell people that aren't even looking. Another kind of person we might tell is someone who is desperately looking. I'm not going to put these scriptures on the screen because I want you to imagine this scene. And I'm going to read from Acts 16, 25. If you're the type of person that needs to follow along and you believe that's being a good Berean, well, then I say, great job. And if you don't, well, maybe you trust me and allow me to embellish a little. But we're we're joining Paul and Silas in prison. They're in chains, probably in the side of a cliff, maybe not a very tall cliff, but a cliff where they've carved out a jail or they've gated off some areas where they can chain prisoners to a wall or to a floor. It wasn't always dry, often wet, and very frequently filled with vermin that would just like to chew on you because you can't get away and you're delicious. As much as you don't want to be, they're hungry and you're available. 
So let's join Paul and Silas. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Remember, in prison. And the other prisoners were listening to them. They didn't have a choice. They're in chains together. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once the prison doors flew open. Imagine the grating of the iron and the clinking of the chains as they fall to the hard rock earth. The jailer's startled. He wakes up and he thinks, oh no, this is it. He saw the prison doors open. He could still hear the grating of one swinging. And he says, this is it. Pulls the sword out of his sheath. He's about to end his own life. Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're still here. The jailer's thinking, all right, it's clearly a dream because that's not normal behavior. Hey, somebody bring the lights. So he gets lights and he goes in to where the prisoners are and he falls trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? This man desperately wanted to know about Jesus. He takes them to their house takes them to his house, cleans them up, and his whole family become believers. He was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Those are three kinds of people that we may share the good news with because evangelism is one person telling another person about Jesus. What is evangelism? We can get all Greek about it. We can talk about euangelion. We can use great big words to say that it means gospeling. And a gospel or an evangelist was a herald. It was a person who might be sent from the front lines of the war to tell their hometowns of their country about the results of a war. And so they were called the evangelist. They would go to the center of town, open the scroll, and read, like, hear ye, hear ye, this is the announcement of the king. That is our job. This is the announcement of the king. I have conquered sin, Satan, death. We're evangelizing. We're gospeling. We're sharing the good news of the established reign of Jesus for eternity and for the whole cosmos, seen and unseen. That's a way to make it real complicated, and it's still true. We can become more specific, but if we just want to combat the lie that sometimes we believe that I don't know what evangelism is. Evangelism is one person telling another person about Jesus. Two guys are digging holes for the city parks department. And as furiously fast as one guy can dig a hole, the next guy is coming right along behind him, and he's scooping the dirt back into the hole. And a passerby thinking, well, there's my tax dollars at work, dares to ask, guys, what's going on here? And one of the shovelers leans over on his shovel and he says, well, you know, the dirt bag that's supposed to be putting trees in the holes is sick again today. I had to, you know, I had to decide whether I was going to say that again today or not. Uh, it sounded just about the same in first service as it does in second service. And I would love to be a dad and explain it until it's hilarious or until you laugh so that I'll move on. But I won't. The point is, sometimes the second lie that we'll believe is, the second lie the enemy feeds us, we'll believe it. We'll put it on the playlist when we wake up, is it's not my job. Evangelism's not my job. And I want to talk about this not because I think that you go around saying, it's not my job. Because I think what we go around doing is thinking, is, it, is that my job? 
Remember, Satan only invited Eve to ask the question, to just consider it. Did he really say you would die? So I think the question that we're fed is, is it really your job? Because you'll see a preacher, I mean, like myself, on a stage preaching, you'll say, well, that's his job. And you're right, it is my job. Or, or you might imagine uh, the famous televangelists with hair like taller than Marge Simpson's hair and waving arms like they are landing all of the planes that go to Miami for spring break and they are asking you to send your money, of course. Maybe that's, maybe that's who you picture when you think of an evangelist and you think, that's his job. And you're right, it's his job. But evangelism, here's the basic truth. Evangelism is for every disciple. I want to invite you guys to say that with me. Evangelism is for every disciple. Can we put this stuff on the playlist? Can we put in the playlist of our minds? Evangelism is one person telling another person about Jesus. And evangelism is the job of every disciple. I feel like I need to go a little faster because I said 20 minutes and we're right, right at 19. So, so, so I just want to go through a couple of scriptures. Because Satan, remember when he tempted Jesus, he used what? He used scripture. So now when you check in on that playlist tomorrow morning, that just somehow it just starts. Man, that's not your job. Is that really your job? He might bring the scripture to mind. Ephesians 4.11, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. And that scripture is true. He gave those people to the church. They established a foundation. At Georgetown Christian, we believe that there are still pastors and teachers and prophets and evangelists. We don't really believe there's an office of apostle. Those people had to see Jesus. So the truth is, yes, there are people who are evangelists. They are gifted in sharing the good news. But evangelism is the job of every disciple. So both are true. Peter says it this way, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for the hope that you have in Jesus. Evangelism is for every disciple. But Satan is a great deceiver. He's a great confuser. Uh, listen to these two churches. Paul writes to Corinthians, and he writes to, to Timothy, who's pastoring the, the Christians in Ephesus. He writes these two things about Satan, who's a great confuser, meddler, deceiver. These are Paul's observations. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He listen to what he says to Timothy. He, he's telling, he's a confuser. He's a deceiver. He's going to meddle and mix up what's going on. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons because Satan is an enemy of God. He's a confuser and a deceiver, and he'll use these lies to get us just a little bit off the path of the truth. Two elderly women were driving down the street one day, and they were driving a very large car specifically for them. They could barely see over the dash. And a woman in the passenger seat could have sworn that they just ran a red light. And she thought, I, there's no way we ran a red light. I'm probably losing my mind. 
I know we didn't just re run a red light. And so she just rides along and keeps to herself. And then she's pretty sure they just passed another red light. They came over a hill. She's pretty sure she saw it. And they ran another red light. And she thinks to herself, we just ran another red light. I've got to pay better attention because I'm pretty sure we just ran another red light. And they drive a little bit further and they come to another red light. She couldn't believe it. They ran it. She finally turns to her friend and says, Mildred, you have run three red lights. You're going to get us killed. And you know what Mildred says? <gasps> Am I driving? <laughs> Sometimes we're like Mildred. Sometimes we're like Mildred with evangelism. <gasps> is that my job? Is that, is that me? Am I? Am I a disciple who's responsible to, to be one person who tells another person about Jesus? It is every disciple's job to evangelize. Jesus says this to his apostles and his friends and his followers. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He expects that we're all witnesses. He expects that evangelism is for every disciple. Evangelism is one person telling another person about Jesus. And evangelism is for every disciple. And how, how does this how does this all come together for Georgetown Christian? I want to share very specifically with you that I'm now 24 minutes into a sermon that's 18. I'm coming close to the end here. I have one story we're going to wrap up with. The praise team, you guys can come on out. They know that you uh, come out of the door. It's okay. I know. There, there they are. They don't just appear. So I, I want to share with you practically how this applies to this body of believers gathered in this building in Georgetown, Indiana, God has put on my heart, and I hope yours, that there are people out there who don't know the good news yet, and they may be people who are looking, and they may be people who are not looking, and they may be people who are desperately looking for answers and for hope, and some of you know these people. Some of you have heard the neighbor say to you, maybe the coworker or the, the student at school, say, you know, there's a daughter, sister, niece, friend, another student, and she's struggling through life. And I'm not talking about grades, I'm talking about sustaining life because she continues to attempt to end her own life. She cuts. She tries to find pills. She's trying to find a way out of the pain that is, I don't have answers for the pain that's in my life. I don't have a way to explain why what's happening to me is happening. I don't have a way to deal with it, to make it meaningful in some way. But as Christians, we do. Our suffering can be done to the glory of God. We can build character which gives us hope. But as long as it's closed up here inside these walls, I'm afraid she's going to keep cutting until she gets the job done. And you know who is going to be looking for a place to celebrate Christmas? Well, 
It's probably not that girl. That's probably not the first person you thought of. But the truth is, Thanksgiving's coming in like seven or eight weeks. That family's gonna gather together. We're in Southern Indiana, let's be honest about where we live. You're probably gonna get together with your family for Thanksgiving. Your neighbors are probably gonna do the same thing. In fact, you've heard about Friendsgiving and you'd love to do it, but you have so many family appointments that you can't even do Friendsgiving. That's your neighbor too. They're going to be with their family and somebody in that family, someone faithful to Jesus is gonna have the nerve to say, where are you guys going to church? And you know what's coming after Thanksgiving. Every year, it surprises us every year. Oh my gosh, Christmas is here. Yeah, you gotta buy the gifts. And you gotta decide where you're going to church because you just left Thanksgiving and grandpa or grandma or sister, brother, aunt, cousin, nephew said, where are you guys going to church for Christmas? And you're gonna see them again at Christmas and you're gonna have to tell them where you did or didn't go to church. And those same people are then in January gonna be faced with the fact that the rest of the world is doing something to advance their life, to become more of what they want to be. And many of them are going to find out that what they're doing in life doesn't answer life's biggest questions. They lived a cultural script that's a lie, and it says, I don't have a purpose, and I don't have a place. And, and friends, if we, can, if we can begin to believe that, that evangelism is one person telling another person about Jesus, even if we get it wrong, even if we screw it up, even if they get offended, just like just like Benny, maybe they'll find hope. After a couple of weeks, this is uh, the rest of Pastor Jerry's story, I called the church member to ask if Benny had passed away, and I was told he was still lingering. A, a week after that, on a Sunday morning, I'm greeting people in the lobby, and as I look out to the parking lot, I cannot believe my eyes. It's, it's Benny, it's Benny. Benny's walking into our worship service. The astonishment was all over my face. I couldn't hide it. I asked him how he was doing after he worshiped, and he said, I'm dying, but I'm here. He left that day, and he'd asked me if I would pray that he could live another Sunday, that he could come back again. We agreed to pray, and that next Sunday he did come back, and he worshiped with us again, and he heard the good news about Jesus, the free gift of life. And he decided to become a follower of Jesus when he came forward. He said, I want to be baptized, but I want my whole family here. You see that right there immediately, someone who's brand new knows that it's the job of every disciple to share that good news. He says, Pastor, will you pray that I can make it back next week? And Benny makes it back next week. And Jerry gets to tell that story in front of the body of Christ from the baptistry before Benny passes spiritually from death to new life, Benny comes up out of the water. He raises his fist and he says, it took me 46 years, but I did it. Benny became a part of the body of Christ. There was thunderous applause and there was so much joy in that congregation that day because of one who trusted Christ. Georgetown, I believe that Benny's story is the same story that some of our neighbors are going to tell. And they're not going to tell it to your glory or to my glory. And they'll probably recount how much we screwed up sharing Jesus with them. And do you know what? 
That will be to God's glory when they become a believer like you and like me in Jesus. I want to remind you that we're going to, we're going to play a song, and we're going to pray, and some of you have to leave because I preached for 30 minutes when I said I would do 20. That's my fault. I'm sorry. Some of you, however, are going to stay and answer the question that will continue to inform the rest of this series, which is what are the misconceptions about or the hurdles to or the questions surrounding evangelism? I've also got some pictures I'd like to share with you from the life of our church in this last week. When you stay, uh, I'll grab a microphone and we'll move up and in for that final conversation today, but it will be after Leighton Praise.